0: Good evening and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, monthly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the Fruited Plains. My name is George, N2APB, and uh, along with us tonight is the uh, is my co-host, the lovely and talented Joe, N2CX. And per usual, we are here to be talking about topics that are interested uh, interesting to us. Here in the, on our ham radio benches and in the radio shack and in the experimenters, electronic experimenters table. And uh, tonight is a whopper of a good show. Um, this is actually episode number three, or part three in our continuing uh, series of uh, Chat with the Designer episodes that in which we are chronicling the buildup of a GPS disciplined oscillator, a GPS DO as they say. In the past episodes, what we've done is uh, uh, described the VCXO, a voltage-controlled crystal oscillator, and uh, we had a small kit available for a short period of time, no longer available. It's all sold out, in which we were able to build up a crystal oscillator, a very simple oscillator, to produce a 10 megahertz signal. That happens to be adjustable, as we found out. And we uh, We are able to tweak it to be right on 10 megahertz by using a trim pot or other control voltage. In uh, part two of our series, last time we started talking about an oven control circuit that would keep the temperature around the, the oscillator at a constant level such that the output frequency would stay relatively the same. In other words, to improve its stability, we control the temperature in order to uh, reduce a variable element of which uh, you know components are naturally exhibit a variability in their different parameters such that the oscillator will change. We like to have oscillators stay pretty close to the, the targeted value for a variety of reasons. Well, we didn't quite finish that up last week, and um, we had intended to get on to the next episode was actually the phase lock loop or the PLL disciplining circuit. We'll get to that next time. And uh, what we wanted to do was to kind of recap where we are, take stock of the different loose ends and kind of snug them up a little bit, as we say, on our whiteboard. And by the way, if you haven't uh, dialed up to our whiteboard that we have for this topic here today, you should go to the chat with the designers website, www.cwtd.org forward slash GPS dash topics. And that's where our whiteboard is today. And that's where it has about Load of information that we're going to be addressing. Now, another really exciting uh, aspect of tonight's show is that we have a couple of guest designers on with us. Um, They made past appearances in one form or another, but tonight we are really going to be drilling into some of the issues that they have been wrestling with, along with Joe and me, trying to get uh, our hands around uh, this whole topic. With us tonight are Dave, AD7JT, and Mike, WA8BXN. And uh, in a moment, uh, um, we'll hear from uh, my cohort, Joe and 2CX. And uh, together, we four are really going to be talking about the different, as I said, the loose ends that we we have here in the show so far in a series of uh, episodes about GPS technology. And saying that, I also know that we have another illustrious amateur radio operator with us, uh, JJ, KC2VGL. Last year sometime, we had an episode of GPS overview, and JJ took the helm almost lock, stock, and barrel and went through a great overview of GPS technology. So he's agreed to be here today with us as well and can fill in some holes based on his actual work experience in the the GPS uh, area. So tonight, what we're going to do is, is focus on what may seem to be kind of disparate uh, things, but we actually have a prodigious preponderance of GPS-related information that I think is going to help fill the holes for you here live with us, as well as for listeners on the podcast. And uh, I, I, as I, as happens every single time when I, when Joe and I create these uh, these programs. We learned something new, and, and this is certainly the case here. Joe, you know, when I was uh, putting together the whiteboard based on our, our chats beforehand and, and so on, you know, I was talking about going to, uh, oh, we had a compendium. We found a compendium that we're going to reference, a document called the GPS Compendium full oh, of really cool information. Going through and extracting some of that information really pointed out to me a couple of uh, things that are that I really wasn't aware of. One of these items that was uh, a revelation to me was the complexity, the actual complexity of computing geolocations on the Earth's surface. There are numerous time systems. There are various factors that are involved in getting the signal down from not just one satellite, if you might have just thought about it as your GPS signals coming from one satellite and that's what gives you the information on your your, your smartphone or your if you have a handheld g- GPS receiver or if you have the GPS display terminal that we talked about last time. And we're going to show that in operation here tonight. But it's not just one satellite that's sending out the information. A number of satellite signals are required to get your exact location pinpointed on Earth. And, by the way, Joe, i want to turn it over to you here. It's not an exact location. Um... But it's uh, kind of within an area of uncertainty of a certain uh, of uh, X number of meters. But anyway, Joe, I think you know ge- geolocation and time coming from satellites has always been a fascinating thing to you and me, and especially here on the ham bench and, and different uh, ham radio applications. Don't you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've had uh, occasion to work with GPS receivers and GPS technologies. At work, uh, so I got kind of an appreciation for it. And since uh, since it's been open up to the public, uh, it has just absolutely absolutely exploded in applications and really revolutionized a lot of things as far as uh, locations, mapping, uh, time, and frequency dissemination. Just some fantastic stuff.
0: Yeah, indeed, there there's a potpourri of predictable information as well as uh, information that is computed. And I think we're going to see some of that here tonight. Um, Just as an aside, what what was really driving an awful lot of where we are today right now with chat with the designers on the GPS topic, was uh, the genesis of it, if you will, was the uh, the SNA, the Scalar Network Analyzer, that uh, Dave, AD7JT, and I um, uh, designed. Dave has done an incredible job with the uh, the software and continues doing it. And we sort of discovered that along the way, we could take that, that what, what started off as a terminal, and use it as a GPS term. Well, you might say, what, what use or value would that be, since we've got a smartphone, that can display this information from our GPS satellites, or it, uh, you know, the, in the olden days, the olden days, like maybe five years ago, there were GPS terminals from E-Trax and Magellan and, oh golly, some others that did that for our automobiles, for tracking, you know, uh, you know, direction finding and while you're driving along the road. Well, we found that by taking the the data stream in from a GPS uh, satellite receiver, we could actually display that same information in a graphical manner and more. And that more part is the key because we have all sorts of really cool applications that can come about now because of this this uh, GPS display terminal, or the GDT, and uh, we think that you're going to see some of those applications for us. If you haven't considered it thus far, just looking at it here tonight, you'll get some other ideas on how we can use it on the bench. I've got one of them now sitting up on the family center, the family entertainment center upstairs in the uh, in the family room, just displaying the clock, the time information. Now, regular chat with the designers, uh, listeners know our fascination with clocks. <laughs> We've We've had a number of episodes about clocks and real-time nature of them and accuracy of them and so on. This, the GDT, is like the ultimate accurate clock as it takes that satellite uh, data coming down um with nanosecond precision and uh displays it now do you need that to find uh you know what time barnaby jones is going to be on the television i don't think so but being a ham and because you're listening here the uh, the measurement of time and the value of its accuracy is is very well understood by us and uh, and uh, it can be really leveraged in in our hobby so without any oh just a little bit more information too um, if you haven't licks, listened to the, uh, what, uh, if you haven't read the list uh, lately in the last 24 hours or so, um, the our oven control kits have come in from our friend Hans Summers, uh, GP, I forgot his uh, call sign at the moment and uh, this is the special oven control kit that uh, he created for us based on our need here on the uh, um on the uh, on the chapter the designer show so if you're interested in in getting catching up with things you can go back to the last episode on ovens uh, oven control or OCXL i forgot what it might have been called but it's in the list on our uh, on our home page tap with the designer home page and at the bottom of that page is the is, is how you can get that particular inexpensive kit along with that nifty nifty um, silver or aluminum um, extruded aluminum uh, enclosure into which the final episode next time is going to highlight and feature the uh, the motherboard which contains which will contain the uh, the, uh, the disciplining circuitry and hold a little GPS receiver and so on so just a bit of news there um, and that reminds me, last before we get into here too, the other part that is fascinating to me about the receivers and if there's any takeaway from this episode that Joe and I want you all to to kind of take away is the fact of, uh, that, uh, in the past, for example, I, I had been intimidated by the word GPS receiver. I said to myself, Oh my gosh, there's a hundred dollar appliance. And I had in my mind a Magellan or an e um, appliance. Um, uh, but the receivers these days are really quite small. And we pointed out in previous episodes, and if you haven't been, if this is the first time joining us, in the previous episodes, uh, we talked about a little postage stamp sized, let me try that again, a postage stamp sized board that contains the GPS receiver and antenna in many cases for like 15 bucks. So that is a receiver that is pulling in the satellite information that is gets displayed on our little GDT, our own GPS display terminal. And uh, it's no longer intimidating to me. Uh, We've been looking a lot at the uh, the offerings from Ublox, a popular manufacturer, a good manufacturer of the GPS receiver modules. And we've been focusing a lot on the, their model called NEO, or NEO, um, NEO 6, NEO 7, and NEO 8. Each offers some extra little capabilities. And I think uh, Dave and Mike are going to be able to tell us about some of those as we go along. But I think the underlying point that I wanted to make here is just that I'm no longer intimidated by it. And I've got maybe maybe three of them in operation here in the shack right now. And they're all feeding data over to various displays and screens and whatnot. And uh, I get the, the most comfort, the utmost comfort, in knowing exactly where I am and exactly what time it is. And uh, more importantly, my digital communications here from my, um, my rigs are using that information as a solid time base and a very accurate time base. So uh, we actually talked about that, the uh, the GPS receivers in general and our GPS display terminal. Last week, I think, Joe, was it last week? (laughs) Last last month. Last month, yeah, well, that was also last week. Um, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, at the... Uh, Mid-Atlantic States VHF Conference in Philadelphia. Uh, Dave was, was with us virtually, but uh, or at least in spirit, as we were displaying the product and demonstrating its use, and uh, a lot of ham interest was uh, was paid to this thing for reasons that we didn't really realize, and I think Dave is going to tell us one of the reasons when it comes around to that, uh, that part of the show. Okay, so that's a long intro to what we're doing tonight, and I hope you're all going to enjoy this show, and uh, the format of the show, if you haven't been with us, before for is to interrupt us at any time. If you have a question, if, we're, if you're not really understanding something that we're saying, chances are somebody else is not as well. So please uh, raise your hand by pressing your little push to talk button so your blue light comes on and, and the TeamSpeak client uh, window. We'll spot it and we'll get you some air time. Okay. Um, hey, Mike, I, I'm, I'm hitting you cold with this, so if you come back and say uh, thanks but no thanks, uh, can you uh, – I'm, I'm in a Section 1 now on the whiteboard, our approach thus far with the OCXO project. You probably have been doing the most experimentation and uh, um, thought – and analysis behind the oven controller uh, so far. And I think uh, you previously got your hands on the Hans Summers kit. And I thought you might just give an overview of it. And uh, even though my schematic of the temperature indicators is still preliminary and and actually, the, the last output amplifier, as I see, has the plus and uh, the inverting and non-inverting input swapped. But nonetheless, I think your temperature control circuit is pretty similar to uh, to what Joe and I had. But maybe you just want to give us a quick recap of where we are with the oven controller. Okay, got to hey, you got press the right
2: button here. Okay, George, uh, very good. Uh, I do have the uh, kit, and uh, in fact, it was just uh, uh, tonight that I started soldering components into it, uh, and... Uh, I like it. Uh, Basically, there's a feedback loop. A transistor is used uh, in the oven that uh, generates a voltage. Uh, There's an op amp that uh, is a comparator, comparing it with a set point. If the uh, temperature is above the set point, then the Uh, Heaters are turned off if the temperature is below the set point. The uh, heater is turned on, the heater being a couple transistors that are going to be just dissipating uh, power. And uh, the op-amp has in it a little feedback that sort of smooths out the uh, uh, variations so it uh, doesn't oscillate. Uh, The set point adjustment I'm still a little concerned with. It's going to be touchy, I think. Uh, but uh, we'll find a way of calibrating it. I've today run some calibration curves with a water bath uh, using the transistor, that's the temperature sensor, to get some voltage readings, and uh, I will post a graph on that sometime to give us an idea of what we're working with. But uh, it's going to be, I think, a very effective uh, oven control circuit and uh, should be kind of interesting to play with.
0: Oh, thanks, Mike, and that really underscores... uh it underscores the experimenter nature that we have here on chat with the designers. If you come here looking for a, a circuit that that uh, that is every last detail kind of ironed out and you know cookbook type of thing, it's probably not going to happen. But what we do here is we don't necessarily push the boundaries of of, uh, of uh, time space continuum, but nonetheless we do combine some techniques and and uh, circuits and approaches to problem solving in order to come. up with a unique solution for ourselves. So here's where we really spotted something from Hans Summers. And I think I still have his uh, website on there. Oh, yes, down at the bottom of the schematic, of uh, Schematic 2 of 2. And uh, go there, and Hans has got some great stuff. And we borrowed some of his. And as I said, he modified some of his things there, too. So um, that kit, the schematic one of two, is the one that is now available if you wanted to get yours and uh, kind of experiment along with it too. And uh, uh, as Mike said, we are learning as we're going along. It should work. It works for Hans's, included in the kit, by the way, not shown on the screen is a 10 megahertz crystal oscillator. It's not a voltage controlled crystal oscillator, but it is a, oh gosh, I forgot whether it's a clap or or Hartley or whatever um, circuit, but it's an oscillator with a 10 megahertz crystal that is controlled. Um, that actually, uh, that would be the right half of the schematic that's not shown. So you can have yourself on that same little circuit board a um, a 10 megahertz oscillator that you might find other uses for. But we kind of uh, set our VCXO as a separate circuit board on top of this uh, oven control circuit such that our temperature, the temperature of our crystal, is controlled by the means that Mike just overviewed. So thanks for doing that. And um, Joe, let, let's do it this way here. Uh, on the temperature indicators, we talked about it last time. Maybe you could just recap it for a second, Then I'm going to ask Mike to step in and talk about his adaptation of it. But Joe, can you give us an overview of the temperature indicators as shown in schematic two of two there on the whiteboard?
1: Sure, no problem. Glad to do it. Yeah, it's a, it's a relatively straightforward uh, circuit. What it does is to use a separate uh, um, IC to um, to sense temperature from the uh, from the oven, uh, and it's calibrated. I, I forget exactly the uh, the uh, scale factor. I think it's something like uh, 19 millivolts per degree C or something like that. At any rate, it gives a an output voltage that is proportional to uh, temperature. Um, This goes into a couple um, comparators, Uh, and the comparators have set points with potentiometers there that set an upper and lower voltage limit that correspond to an upper and lower temperature limit. So the comparators um, uh, look at the voltage coming out of this uh, uh, temperature-sensing IC, and uh, one or the other turns on to tell whether or not you're high or low. And um, um, when you're either high or low, when you're in between, yet another uh, gate is used to sense that condition. So you get a, um, you get a three, three, display, three LED display. One is lighted when you're uh, too hot, one is lighted when you're too low in temperature. The third is when you're in the sweet spot right in between the two. So um, you can tweak the pot, let the thing settle out, and then uh, assure yourself that you're uh, on exactly
2: the, uh, the temperature you want.
0: Thanks, Joe. Mike, you had some observations about this circuit. Do you want to recap those?
2: Well, in principle, it's a good circuit. The concept is nice, but the details are some problems with. Uh, In the two uh, leftmost comparators, uh, the way it's uh, wired up right now, one LED will come on, and as you keep increasing the temperature, it'll stay on, and the other LED will come on, is, I think, one problem. And uh, the rightmost comparator uh, it just doesn't work, I don't believe. to. Uh, what, what we kind of want to do is use a comparator to somehow do a NOR. When neither the hot nor the cold is on, we want to turn on the uh, just right LED. And uh, with some little modifications, uh, uh, it can be made to work, and I'm sure we're going to include those in the documentation uh, forthcoming.
0: Yeah, indeed. It's all in the specs, too, or at least what the original design goals were. Uh, Joe and I were talking about the rightmost uh, comparator being a, um, a NAND when both are low, when, when both are high, so it would be an AND. So, um, Oh, well, whatever. The point being, as you said, Mike, is that uh, we are currently working on these circuits now before committing the printed circuit board, and uh, ultimately we'll get that uh, right and um, serve as a, a pretty good indicator, and then also have some good outputs, or we'll have some test points, that one can monitor the output of these circuits, i.e. tell whether the temperature is too high or too low, while contained inside that nifty aluminum enclosure that uh, we talked about. And that enclosure, by the way, is also pictured on the last week's episode. Oh, and also, um, I guess I didn't include it. I thought it was also on this page here. But uh, you see a couple of photos down below which talk about, which show that uh, the oven control circuit board and the components on the left and uh, the, uh, the prototype of the um, temperature of the board that slides into that aluminum enclosure on the right. So you see the VCXO sitting on top of the oven control circuits on the right and then there's a little GPS receiver in the upper right, upper left hand corner on that yellow board, and the temperature control circuits below that. Um, I'm going to transition, somebody want to say something?
3: I was <clears throat> Hi, this is Rick. I just had a question. When you were uh, doing the design work on this, you've obviously got a uh, all digital circuit as it was. You you bang the heater on uh when it's uh two temperatures too low and cut it off completely uh when it's too high. Had you considered a, a proportional control, an analog rather than the digital control?
0: Um no, and if I understand your question right, I mean obviously we're we're switching the analog signals on the input of the comparators, but the output um, the outputs are digital. They are open collector from the LM339, and hence the pull up um, the pull up mechanism is by the LED and the limiting resistor on each of the on each of the outputs. So is that the digital you're talking about?
3: Maybe I misunderstand the the circuitry there, but my understanding is looking at it is that either uh, you've got the full heating voltage applied or you have no voltage applied and you switch back and forth between those two states to maintain uh, the oscillator frequency. And I was just wondering whether you had also considered a control which was (coughs) continuously variable and the closer it got to the, uh, uh, the correct temperature, it would then settle on a voltage to hold that.
0: Ah, okay, I was speaking of the display circuit. You were talking about schematic one. Actually, proportional um, uh, control is present in this circuit. Mike, did you mention that?
2: Well, I didn't uh, spell it out in those words, but, yes, there is proportional control. As the uh, uh, feedback voltage differs from the set point, there's going to be more and more drive to the heaters and uh, make
0: more heat.
3: Okay, I apologize. I I misunderstood.
0: Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks for asking, Rick. George? George. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, one other
1: thing. As you mentioned in the... the uh, comparator there, it's actually op-amp that's uh, used. There is a um, integrator in there also, and the integration time is chosen such that, um, even if you did have a bang-bang type uh, on-off control voltage, the integrator time constant would smooth things out so that you would gently um, settle in on the proper operating temperature, and you wouldn't bop back and forth between the extremes. Hans went into some description on his website about choosing the appropriate Capacitor in the um, integrator feedback loop to uh, to settle out the um, things so that you don't oscillate back and forth in frequency. Things settle out gradually um, and come on frequency without a lot of uh, wild variations.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Joe, and um, that's a reminder too, uh, Rick. There's um, um, I think on the link or some if if you drill into the the kit uh, on Hans's page, you'll find the documentation for it. It's an extraordinarily well documented assembly process with a great theory of operation too, so um take a look at that if you're interested and um I think what we'll wanna do maybe afterwards later on, maybe as a special episode, is to once once many of us have got the kit put together, probably wanna work through it together to maybe ensure that it's working working right or working well enough. And uh, we'll use that uh, assembly and theory of operation manual uh, pretty extensively. But you can take a look at that for more for more information than what we can probably pro- provide here tonight.
3: Okay, I'll do that. Thanks.
0: All right, are there other questions um, about the uh, oven control?
2: I want to mention that we're probably going to want to come up with an assembly manual for the board as we're using it, the instructions that Hans has, For his existing kit, Uh, I don't know, they are terribly long, and uh, we're going to ignore most of them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. And and actually, Hans contacted me and asked me if I wanted to have a special manual um, just for this subset of his overall kit. Um, and, and we may take him up on that, or, as you said, to, to kind of whip together our own version, a a smaller version for the more advanced users, perhaps. I'll always falling back on Hans's for uh, more detail if necessary. Good idea. Thank you. Are there any other questions here before we move on? Okay, then. Well, again, just as a recap, um you can uh, you can you can get if you wish, and we're not pushing it here by any stretch. Um, you can get an OCXO kit from last week's uh, last week's whiteboard. I'll put it here on this page now that I'm thinking of it a link for it. Um, we only got a li- we only have a limited number of them, much like the VCXO um, kit is now gone. Um, We're partway through, we're already halfway through, just after announcing it uh, yesterday. I think it was yesterday, maybe the night before. Um, So for only two days being available, we're down down to half of the uh, OCXO kit available. So if you want this handful of parts plus a pretty cool uh, circuit board and a PCB enclosure type of thing that we're not going to use, but again, it might be kind of fun to do anyways for yourself. Um get uh you can see last week's episode for that. So Dave, A D seven J T, um, Mr. Software Guru for um, the projects here and an incredible, incredible uh set of designs that you got going here, Dave. Um let's let's move on here into the section number two, uh, the chat with the designer GPS receiver module. So I'll set the stage and being essentially saying that uh, this little baby, this puppy right here, and I'm showing the, uh, I think this is the 7M. Yes, it is. It's the 7M. Neo 7M. That's pictured in Section 2 here on our page. Uh, This kind of started it all. Actually, a 6M started it. But um, I gave a call over to Dave one time, one day, oh, six months ago. I forgot when we started, Dave. I said, hey, what do you think about uh, taking GPS data and pumping it into our, uh, at that time it was called the NAT, the Network uh, Analyzing Terminal. Takes an RS-232 or serial input stream in and then through some processing we can display various uh, information on the terminal, on the display uh, display. So he got to thinking, and we got to talking, and and, uh, we found some GPS receivers here and found out how to use them. And long story short is that uh, we really became kind of enamored with their capability, taking uh, the basic capability and then displaying it. But before we get into the actual GDT, Dave, again, can we talk a little bit about the receiver modules? What, What you found about them and or their operation and Ease of use, and we listed the specs down there in this section here, both for the 7M and the, and the 8M, and what their differences might be.
4: Yeah, okay, George. Um, yeah, the, 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 the specs for, from U-blocks are a lot of trouble to read, to tell you the truth. It's an awful lot of information in there, most of which we don't care about. Uh, The difference, as near as I can tell, between the 6, 7, and 8 series, uh, one of the major differences is the number of satellite channels they can copy. Uh, Starting, I think, with the 6, it was down in the 40s, and I think the 8 is up in the 60s or 70s. The 8 also will copy, uh, will track the Russian satellites. The GLONASS system that they have, the the Russians have put up their own system, of course, uh, to sort of compete with our GPS system, Uh, and the the eight will track both of them, so I've I've got one running here now that's currently tracking 26 satellites, and they're roughly split, uh, maybe a little over half of them are are U.S. GPS satellites, the rest are Russians. And uh, they all have the same information. The serial port, every every second, this, this is what I've seen in, in all the receivers I've looked at, them, both from uh, U-blocks and uh, some others, uh, Garmin, and, and I've got one other one. I don't even know who makes the thing in it, but it uh, it, it sends out roughly the same information. Um, it sends a packet of um, messages that contain the satellite information, include, include your latitude, longitude, And uh, a lot of information on the individual satellites, uh, which we display on on our graphic display, uh, the relative signal strengths, if you would, between all the satellites we're monitoring. And then the receiver has thresholds, and it decides which which satellites are reliable enough to use. And uh, I think you mentioned earlier, George, it has to have at least four of them to get a good fix. And the more the merrier. I don't know how many they actually use in it. But anyway, the uh, it's interface is very simple. It's a simple RS-232 interface. Uh, they default to, to 9,600 bits per second, which is adequate. Um, you can adjust that in some cases all the way up to over 300 uh, kilobaud. Um, that's a little overkill, I think. Uh, the thing is they send a set of messages out that, have to, that you really have to be able to get through in a, in a second. Otherwise, they start overlapping, and the second timing is very precise. It's it's um, synchronized also with the uh, atomic clocks that are on board the satellites, and uh, everything is, is such high precision. It's amazing. And using these devices, it's, just, it's extremely easy to tap into it. So,
0: hey Dave, you you timed out. You have to let your PTT up for a moment.
4: Right, that's a habit of mine. Sorry about that. Um, I don't know how far back I have to go. Anyway, everything is very precise.
0: Okay. Is that it?
4: Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's enough for now, I guess.
0: (laughs) I didn't mean to suggest that you shouldn't continue, just that I didn't know if you had let up or you timed out again for some reason. Sometimes there's a capacitive hold on the keyboard, and if you let go and release it again and press down again, it's just as if you hadn't let go. Um, yeah, uh, first of all, before I forget, um, I think these modules here have, it's not an RS-232 interface, but it's a UART interface with a digital uh, RX data and TX data uh, lines. As you can see on the board, um, on the left side of that board of the photo, going from bottom to top is VCC, RX, TX, and ground. And those are the key signals for a UART-based serial channel at 9,600 baud, I think is the default um, but you can change it to be whatever you want through the serial interface itself. Um, so we okay. take that that uh, that serial port into, in our case, the GPS. Uh, uh, display terminal, or you could take it through an RS-232 converter to say a U- U, uh, USB port to your PC. You know, a little CP-2102 type of uh, data level converter, and uh, have uh, your your PC be the display terminal. Although we don't we don't need no stinking PCs here. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead.
4: Yeah, what I thing I was going to mention, all the uh, the manufacturers provide uh, PC applications that you can plug their their devices into and uh, let you visualize in in their mode what's going on. Um, another thing that I didn't mention was there's uh, this Ublocks guys have uh, a. a they call it time pulse, but it has a, a digital output that's, that's highly synchronized with the satellite clocks again. And you can vary the frequency from 1 hertz to uh, 10 megahertz. That's what that, in the picture on the whiteboard, that's what that little blue wire is. It's picking that up and bringing it out to that connector I added to the end.
0: Oh, Roger that. Okay, that that's a good point. And uh, Ublocks is really, a prim- in, in my view, and in, in JJ's view as well, um, a premier supplier of uh, GPS receivers. And um, what they uh, what they do is, is provide uh, an ability that not all GPS receivers have, and that's what we call as a programmable output, um, a programmable output uh, frequency. Um, now, essentially, what happens, and then I'm I'm just doing the high level here. Inside that that uh, module, that white module that's on the Neo7 board that we're looking at, inside that is a, is a free running oscillator at uh, gosh, Dave, what's the frequency? It's, it's not 10 megahertz. It's something higher.
4: It's 48
0: megahertz. 48 megahertz, and um, you being the programmer have the ability to <clears throat> talk with that chip. Over a protocol that UBlocks uh, provides, and you can set the division ratio from that oscillator inside that happens to be synchronized to the GPS signal coming down from the satellites. Um, so that, that uh, 48 megahertz frequency is uh, is is pretty precise. And then you can set the divisor on uh, some circuits, uh, some FPGA-like circuits, if you will, that provide a time pulse, a variable frequency time pulse is what they call it. And that's what Dave picked up in the blue wire uh, and then takes it out to a connector. But that's the frequency we're talking about. Joe, kind of, yeah. of clarification here? Sure, Joe, go ahead, please.
1: You might mention, while it is programmable, it does not have the ultimate uh, uh, jitter-free, clean techniques and uh, symmetry that a disciplined oscillator would have. It's, uh, it's close, and on average, it's very high accuracy, but it doesn't have all the good characteristics that we're designing into the disciplined oscillator.
0: Ah, great points. I'm going to call on Mike in a moment. Um, but absolutely right, Joe. And uh, oh, there's so much wrapped up in doing, and presenting some of this information in a logical manner is is also uh, challenging at times. So in a nutshell, I think what you're saying is not a pure sine wave coming out. Essentially, it's a quasi-square wave of some sort. But it is a relatively accurate uh, signal coming out of, the, of these, these GPS receiver modules. Now, um, it's useful for us, as we are finding out, uh, to use that signal, that time pulse signal, as an input to some conditioning circuit or disciplining circuitry, such that we can take our good VCXO signal, a nice, a closer to a sine wave output of the VCXO, and discipline it, or have it be driven by this GPS receiver signal that Joe mentioned, and have it be a more accurate accurate VCXO signal, such that the, it's more sign line, sign line, <laughs> sinusoidal waveform is going to be much more accurate than it would be without it. Now, um, that was kind of a mouthful, but another aspect comes to mind, and this is a a part of the program that we were, we four, and actually uh, JJ is included in this, it's kind of like a little design team here that is just finding all sorts of fun in in working with this this project. There's a whole area of timing and jitter or noise that is on all signals, uh, no matter what kind of a you have, it's got some noise. There is no signal that I'm aware of that is noise-free. Um, everything has noise in it. It's just a matter of how much noise or how little noise is that makes it good. Heretofore, we have been espousing that the GPS signals, and especially like the one pulse per second signal, a little one hertz output, or actually a one hertz pulse that comes from these modules, we were saying that it is uh, that it is uh, the utmost accuracy as determined by the sig- by the cesium, the onboard clocks, the cesium clocks, and the satellites. That's not really the case for a variety of reasons that are probably beyond the time that we have to discuss it here. But in a nutshell, uh, the signals coming down from the satellites experience all sorts of interference, as you might think, getting from many miles, uh, many miles above the Earth down to us. Joe, what's, or JJ, what, what's the average height of, or typical height for a, uh, for a GPS satellite?
2: Uh, Geos, uh, Leo's
5: are 500 miles, and Geos, I believe, are (laughs) 23,000. 20,000
1: kilometers for GPS.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah,
5: kilometers,
1: 20,000
0: kilometers. 20,000 kilometers. That's farther than I can walk. These days, and um, it's a long way for a low-power signal. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of the very, very good information, very, very interesting information we've got on our whiteboard here. A little bit farther down, we'll probably gloss over it pretty quick. But uh, in a nutshell, it, there's talks about signal levels. JJ, did you have something?
5: Oh yeah, I was just going to say the GPS um, GNSS satellites are considered NEOs, medium Earth orbiting. So you have LEOs, NEOs, and GEOs.
0: Alrighty. Um, so we will be mentioning the signal levels and signal encoding schemes, and in a nutshell, um, it's a low power signal being sent over spread spread spectrum. And it takes multiple paths getting down to us because of atmospheric types of interference and bouncing and multi-path. And these little receiver modules, this very one that we're looking at on the screen, has all sorts of sophisticated signal processing recovery of that of those signals, uh, circuits that, that process those signals coming in. And there's such a thing as correlation, a high probability of signal location. All of that translates to a probability of the one pulse per second being precisely on one second boundaries. Now I said it with that emphasis on purpose because we assume, we in the, uh, I guess, uh, in the time keeping world, uh, one would assume that one pulse per second from a GPS satellite is one pulse per second by God. And... uh, and it, it's close, but there is noise with it. In fact, Mike, you came across some noise observations and did a little digging to find out what kind of characteristic the noise performance was taking. And did did, did you find out some answers of of the uh, uh, of, of that, Mike?
2: Well, I asked the question. Joe gave the answer, and it's uh, sort of a normal distribution around a second. Uh, every second uh, you get the the pulse out of the GPS. Uh, it's, But it uh, varies back and forth a little bit with a distribution that's just about normal over a long period of time. The average gets to be very
0: good. Okay, now when you say normal, what you mean is a Gaussian distribution And uh, that kind of a bell-shaped curve that um, most of us have encountered at some point, with a standard deviation of of x of whatever that that width of your standard distribution might be. So that's another way of saying that it ain't always exactly precise to like the uh, to to fifty-nine zeros or fifty-nine nines worth of of precision. Long story short, same as we said with, uh, there is no such signal as a noiseless, there's no such thing as a noiseless signal. In this case here, there's no such thing as an absolutely perfectly aligned one pulse per second. That all said, it's pretty darn close and pretty, pretty darn close for our purpose in the ham shack is, is more than, more than what we need. And let's just go on from there. Uh, I just, I'm I'm really, I love getting into that whole topic. Uh, The time nuts, uh, T-I-M-E dash N-U-T-S is a list, time nuts list that uh, people who really, really think hard about these things. And I enjoy reading it, reading the list and trying to learn from it. Um, But uh, they would be the first to really step up and and kind of affirm what I was uh, uh, saying. Okay, that's, uh, I think the bottom line of this whole section of the GPS receiver thing is that A, it ain't that hard to get your hands around GPS these days. B, pretty darn cheap, like for 15 bucks with free shipping from offshore, you can get yourself one of these little modules. And C, it's way, way easy to connect this up to your PC, if you want to use a PC, or to your GPS display terminal. And uh, have a really, really useful display screen or two, and a programmable generator if you happen to be using the ublox chips and uh, you can have a lot of fun so we've we've posted some links there and if you haven't uh, looked into it yet we really urge you to do that because we'll probably be using gps timing and signals in uh, in future episodes and i think you'll really enjoy that um are there any questions about the gps receivers before we move on yeah rick go ahead
3: uh, looking at the uh, the, the uh, information the diagrams you've got here, <clears throat> I can see that if you know uh, you need a pulse to compare the pulses that are arriving, so that you can calculate the travel time. What I don't see is how you get that pulse against which you are going to compare the received signal.
0: Okay, we'll probably get to that in a in a little bit. But what Rick is referring to, I believe, is that uh, it's uh, it's a bit like the like a like a radar signal. In a, in a way, and JJ, we're gonna we call on you to kind of talk about some of this in section that talks about the GPS essentials. The next section, um, but in a se- in essence, in a very simplistic way, it's like a like a like a bat's radar system where it issues a pulse and it determines when the, the pulse comes back, and the difference in time between the time of issuance to the time of detection is what is used as one element of the uh, uh, determining either the latitude, longitude, or time or uh, is used in determining things.
3: Yeah, I understand in radar, you know exactly when you transmitted the pulse, and then you look for the echoes. But here, you don't seem to have any way to know when the pulse was actually transmitted, because that's what you're using to figure out where you are.
0: Yeah, Mike, did you have something?
2: Yeah, when the satellite makes its transmission, it says where it is and when it's sending its signal. And uh, so you can calculate a delay, uh, I believe, if you get transmissions from several satellites and know where they should be, you can uh, figure out where you are. Okay, now that makes sense. If you know exactly exactly where the
3: satellite is, then you know how to calculate uh, the relative distance. Yeah, Dave? Yeah, the, the
4: receivers, as I understand it, also carry something in them that's called the almanac which tells them exactly where every satellite is at any given time. And it's, it sounds like it's a big uh, iterative process. When they first, first fire up, uh, they start looking for satellites. That if they think they know where they are, they think they know which satellites they should be able to see, and so they start looking for them first. Well, if they haven't moved since the last time they were turned off, they'll find them right away. If they have moved, then you've got a, 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 fairly, can be a fairly long process sometimes before it finally zeroes in on where it is.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and that's part of the process of uh, aqu- um, the, the time for acquiring satellites if you've ever used a GPS system, again, like Magellan or E-Trax or uh, Garmin. Um, it is that uh, acquisition time, that uh, interval that at first, and it's probably going through that process, uh, look up, Dave, that, that you mentioned. And, uh, yeah, and more, Dave?
4: Yeah, uh, the first time you turn these on... <laughs> Remember, the last, the last place they were where they were turned off was probably in China. So it takes them a, quite a while, usually, when they first fire up to figure out where they are. But then after that, when you every time you turn them on, it it's really it seems like a matter of seconds. They have a, a real-time clock in there, too, that once they get that set, there's a little, little battery for backing it up. So they know what time it is, when, approximately what time it is when they turn them on. So that all helps. So once, once they look, think they know where they are, it doesn't take them any time at all to lock in.
0: Gotcha. And that's probably a great observation about the last time it was turned on was in China. The uh, Let's move on to the next section. I want to move along quickly because we are running out of time and we have some good stuff coming up. JJ, we're going to get now into the uh, section concerning, uh, I guess I labeled it Section 3, GPS Compendium Topics. There is a document, again put out by our friends at Ublox, since they happen to be most prolific in their their documentation and background and line of products and so on um and uh they have a document called the gps compendium um or actually the g the essentials of Navig- satellite navigation is the subtitle what we did is uh, we went through and took samples of select topics um and just the the bare essentials description of them in order to illustrate points, um, and therefore the diagram that, that Rick was alluding to, how do you find how to, how is the time actually able to be, uh, or dis- distance be able to be computed, um, is actually described in greater detail in that section from which I took that simple diagram that, that led off the section, if that makes sense. So I guess I would just urge you to download that document and and read through it. There are sections of it that go that are fascinating, absolutely fascinating from a standpoint of background and understanding. And uh, and there are other sections that go into so much detail about Cartesian to European coordinate systems and the mathematics behind it that uh, I glossed over that. Um, And uh, you can kind of get from a document what you want to get. But uh, just this very first, this uh, very first one, uh, first diagram I have in the definition section, number one, I guess it's down to number three, was one of the uh, aha moments for me and understanding why it takes not at least, um, I think Dave, you had said, it can take up to four satellites to make a determination for um, your location and and time and such. But not only that, but it needs at least four in order to do that. Now, we'll see from diagrams down below that there's a constellation of ever-changing satellites. Uh, These are not geosynchronous satellites. So they orbit the Earth on a plane of inclination that differs, that each one differs, um, and therefore, and there's some magic involved in it, at any given time, there are at least four satellites, if not more, within, distance, within um, receiving distance of any, of any ground point. But JJ, I think just in kind of glancing down, we don't have time to go through this section by section, but maybe if you could lend us some of your insight and experience on the GPS and kind of the topics that are copied here, in the, whether it's a coordinate system or at least four satellites or computation uh, you know, mechanisms, uh, give us a little bit of inf- background information on this stuff um or not
3: how am I doing here?
5: Okay. So basically, the way um, the way the entire system is worked. By the way, the the uh, GPS discipline on the commercial side is is mostly used for oscillator um, disciplining for femto cells. So most of the GPS discussions around discipline relate to commercial femto, which are basically cellular repeaters, small base stations, small, uh, uh, cell, cell and small cell cells and some BTSs. And, um, but the way GPS I think of it is really time, these are atomic time sources and to talk about where they're located, um it was stated earlier that there is an identification that comes down in the in the bitstream, and then you also have you also have a predictable orbit so you know where the this particular satellite and identifier is through uh, a PLE. And so that basically you know where to predict. And then you also have to get an accurate time, you have three and, and hence. This, Distance, you end up with three or more satellites, and that's looking at the differential time signal. And you basically can calculate in baseband. You can recover the uh, timing signals and the identifier, and then look at the differential between uh, multiple satellite systems. And um, you know, so you basically can calculate your position in space. And if you're looking at, if you're actually going to use it for GPS, you need four minimum of four satellites. If you need it for timing, three is three is funny but four gives you the altitude and gives you the uh, position, point and space that you need for a location, a minimum of four satellites, or what's called a 3D fix. There's 2D fixes and 3D fixes. So for a 3D fix, you need four satellites and to, to um, get an accurate five-meter or better accuracy. And for timing, like I said, you have to have at least three satellites or more to resolve the um, synchronization of timing. And the timing uh, basically... Uh,
0: Speaking of timing, JJ, I think you timed out. So you have to release the PTT and then press it again after a bit. JJ, can you hear us?
5: Yeah, sorry about that, but uh, the came in on top of it, but so that's basically in a nutshell how it it works, and it's subject to quite a few errors, as you mentioned, atmospheric errors and distortion and so forth in the signal, and uh, so um, the, what separates GPS chip, what
0: JJ is a professor at the New Jersey College of New Jersey, and he gets an awful lot of incoming calls that I think we're seeing this as evidenced right now. Evidenced right
5: now. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Now, my sister's in the hospital. She has uh, leukemia, so I'm on standby right now for, for that, those kind of calls. So, um, we're going. Okay. So, you basically have um, a very accurate time base. Uh, commercially, you can derive on a good oscillator um, phase lock to clean up the jitter. And so forth, you can get five parts per billion in terms of accuracy. And uh, the other rating I was going to say is rated in the um, time to first fix. And the advantages of the newer chip, as mentioned earlier, is that you have more satellites and hence a quicker TTFF, which is time to first fix. So when you look at a GPS receiver chip, you look at today, you look at what satellites it supports, time to first fix, power, power, and a cold, cold part. Um, and there's some of the key parameters you look for. Um, I don't know if that's that's a quick overview but uh over to
0: you George. Okay that's that's really helpful JJ thank you. Um it it fascinates me about again and I come back to it the technology that's under the hood as it were Mike Mike made a comment on the in the text chat area here say fortunately you don't have to know the details of how it works in order to make use of the resource <laughs> and and to which I replied Ain't that the truth for so many things these days? I mean, for example, our radios are so integrated today that um, one might have been able to understand and actually go in and fix uh, the local oscillator or something in a uh, a vintage radio of yesteryear, or even some of the earlier, less integrated semiconductor radios that we have. But today, in 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 the palm of your hand is an SDR radio that is processing power that far exceeds anything that was dreamed about Back in those days, so it's 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 fascinating how the technology is uh, available, and I think all we can do, unless you really wanted to get into it uh, as a profession, um, you can uh, uh, gloss over it or just read about it in, in, in general terms, as we're sort of discussing here. If you go down to the uh, um, Section 8, I I entitled that thing the three GNS systems. Now, GNS, of course, is GPS or Global Navigation System, GNS. That's the general classification, the category, of which there are three main types, at least. Joe, I'm going to call on you in a moment to ask about um, the current state of GPS technology, Joe uh, N2CX, but uh, in general right now what we've been talking about are GPS here in the U.S., GLONASS from the Russian satellites, and Galileo, which is a European, um, I believe it's European, uh, yeah, the, Euro, uh, the EU uh, version of uh, their satellites in, up in the const, uh, satellite constellation. But the chart there in Section 8 talks about the most important properties of each of those. I think things that were really interesting to me were the orbital periods. Um, you know, we're talking like, uh, oh gosh, you know, 12 hours on the average perhaps. The frequencies that are used and available. Encryption that is available and used. Um, the different time systems that uh, are available. And I would imagine that includes mapping to the local um, surface characteristics, the surface uh, coordinate systems on the surface of the Earth. And the different kinds of signal characteristics. Uh, Uh, CDMA, FDMA, and um, uh, again, CDMA for Galileo. But taking a look at that provides you all sorts of insight that you could drill into even more to understand uh, more about these, uh, the major satellite systems. Joe, I read in the compendium, actually, that China had, uh, was about to put up a satellite system. Do they not, not? Do they have it right now? Do you know?
1: As far as I've been able to tell, it is not operational yet. They may have some satellites up, it. I don't, don't think it's working. They may be, uh, maybe they don't have enough satellites to get it going, or maybe they're undergoing some, uh, some startup difficulties, but I'm not sure that it's operational yet.
0: All righty. Um, again, you can read up on this. I think this companion document is like uh, five years old at least. So you can get an idea of what might have happened. Oh, another last piece of information, Joe, you probably do have insight on is the accuracy. There, at one time, there was a thing called commercial accuracy and, uh, versus uh, military accuracy. Is there still that distinction and difference in accuracy?
1: To some extent, yes. But, uh, for the most part, at least with the U.S. Um, US um, system, they used to have uh, what they called SA or selective availability. Um, where the uh, only the military with uh, uh, encrypted data could get the ultimate accuracy um, these days uh, that has that was taken off probably ten years ago um, and most of the accuracy is still available to um, to civilian users down to about a couple meters. Military can get more accuracy from uh, from the satellites. Uh, However, there's also something called uh, differential GPS, which uses a couple different techniques, including some um, land based um, receivers, a multiplicity of land based receivers and transmitters, uh, to where um, people who um, want to use them for surveying and such can get accuracy to within millimeters. Um, it's fantastic. GLONASS is uh, military. i um, not sure what their accuracy is. I think the ultimate accuracy is similar to the U.S. Galileo has very good accuracy, and the um, the real uh, selling point of Galileo was that um, there's this uh, strictly civilian um, system um, with um, the civilian uh, users being able to get uh, pretty darn good accuracy uh, with um, some extra payments for uh, enhanced accuracy.
0: Okay, there you have it. It's always interesting to know that you can uh, – Dave, Dave has pointed this out to me a couple of times in that uh, if you – Oh, Dave how did you say it that in order to get a picture of the accuracy of your given receiver you can point it to a, oh use use GPS um, oh shucks Use Google Maps, point it to your house, and over time look to see how that, that um, the accurate, uh, uh, the pinpoint accuracy map shows. Did I say that right?
4: Now there's an application that uh, Ublocks pulls out for your PC. It's called U Center, and you plug the thing in there, and then there's a, a mode in that application where you can show Google Maps. Or Google Earth, I guess it is, and every second it puts a dot where the receiver thinks it is, and you can watch it you know you can see the air in there it'll wander around in my particular case um, then you can zoom in on your house so you're right right there you could <laughs> you could measure it and uh, it wanders around probably over in mine i think stays within a circle of about 10, uh, oh ten fifteen feet radius, and you you see all the it looks like a bunch of green balloons. <laughs> In there, but it gives you an idea of, of uh, how much uh, inaccuracy there is in there. There's also a, a thing that uh, the receivers calculate called the dilution of precision, and there's a couple different ways they do that, and that's another number that uh, that you can dig out of the information coming from the receiver. And typically, a, a, a good signal has less than two meters dilution. Uh, mine sitting here, I'm looking at mine right now. It's at 1.2. Uh, they claim you can't get better than one. So anyway, that's the way they measure it.
0: That's fascinating. I <laughs> look at a, um, a, um, a note that uh, Mike posted, and he said the wandering gives you a speed and heading when standing still, which is kind of an oxymoron, I guess. But, Mike, what did you mean by that?
2: Well, if you have uh, an automotive GPS and you're parked, uh, it sometimes still will give you a speed and uh, heading. And even our GDT uh, uh, will give a speed and heading at times because of inaccuracies and one measurement to the next, it looks like you're moving. Yeah, mine right now is bouncing between 0.1
4: kilometer per hour and zero.
0: <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that, which is a nice lead-in to the last section here before we close down the, uh, the show here tonight, and that is talking again about the GPS display terminal. This time, of course, um, we can talk about it with a little bit more visual aids or showing on the whiteboard. And also, in this last section, I put a uh, admittedly poor-quality um, video, a YouTube video, um, up there that I did moments before showtime. I'm going to do a better one, a better audio. Better audio, 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 audio. Well, that was appropriate, too. Rick, what's up?
3: Sorry, I, just, I wasn't using it there. One interesting fact that has no bearing on the electronics, I have read that each one of those satellites in orbit represent a $300 million investment, each one.
0: I believe it. That's an amazing number too. Um, um, so on this display terminal, the YouTube video. Take a look at that, and it will actually show the GPS data, a um, uh, GPS display terminal in operation, and you'll you'll uh, you'll see it happening. What I wanted to do is to turn this over to Dave and Mike, and Mike has been an incredible tester <laughs> for. For this particular for for the gdt and uh mike i I wish i had you working with me at my company with my companies over the years uh shaking down our product and using it and providing valuable feedback and insight because you've been doing a heck of a job here Uh, but dave and mike work like uh, hand in glove as as far as uh, shaking the bugs out and getting the software working really really nicely Um, Dave, maybe if you just wanted to lead off with just a brief overview, we don't want to repeat everything that we did last year, last week. Um sorry, last month in the episode previous to this. What I'd like to do maybe is just uh, um maybe something we didn't talk much about were a couple of the new features of the GDT that have come in recently, sort of like Maidenhead and uh I'm not sure when speed uh came into, into play and the programmable time pulse via the signal process or the uh signal generation screen, SIGGEN, um, if you guys could talk about that for a few minutes and I'm going to listen along and, and enjoy it myself. Dave?
4: Yeah. Okay, George. Um, yeah, since, um, uh, well, since over the last month, we've done things like introduce the maidenhead, uh, coordinates, uh, you, that you can see that that's a thing labeled LOC in the, if you look at the GPS dash G display, uh, that's the maidenhead, which surprisingly works. Um, the signal generator is kind of interesting. I think that's probably going to get a lot of activity. Uh, there's uh, different ways that, uh, well, for example, the uh, the receiver will will send out a, a frequency, a, you know, some stated frequency before it achieves lock with the satellites, and then then it has, it'll switch to another set of parameters once it achieves lock. And you can have up to uh, four of these situations if you've got the the, uh, the dash T, the, the timing receiver, uh, which has two TP pulses. Uh, if you scan down to the signal generator mode, you can look at the picture there, and you can see the buttons along the right side um, the the <clears throat> with the red background and the yellow and white writing on there. And you, you can select those and then you can individually set the frequency and the duty cycle for each of those signals. And I, I'm still thinking of things you can do with this that uh, uh, really look interesting. <laughs> you know, being able to change both the frequency and the duty cycle and having a great accuracy. Plus, you got control over the phasing. If you have more than one of these signals, you can inject delays in the, and adjust the phasing between the two signals. For example, you, you can do it with either two receivers, or if you've got this, the timing model of the receiver, you could do it between the two uh, time pulses that the signal receiver generates, um, That and like I say, up to up to 10 megahertz. I show one there, I just ran through the digits, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, seven, five 6, 7, uh, with a duty cycle of 10%. But the duty cycle can vary all the way from virtually 0 to 100%, no problems. So I think there's a lot of power in that. There's, there's a list of, down at the bottom there, are some of the applications that this thing could be used for. And you're getting us this, this precision time base for, uh, you know, what, like $12 <laughs> free, with free shipping. Huh? It's an amazing thing. Anyway, that's some of the, the newer stuff we've been doing.
0: Yeah, it is um, uh, amazing. The the frequency generation is, I think, what is going to be of a great functional interest to hams. And um, as we talked, and Mike, you might want to make mention of this when I turn it over, is the output quality, the signal quality. It's not sinusoid, but it's certainly good enough to use, in many instances, driving up with an appropriate amplifier, perhaps driving a a double-balanced mixer um, for a direct conversion, using a direct conversion receiver or, or transmitter for that uh, or a direct transmitter for that matter um, there are some very very efficient um, low pass filters that can take that signal and by the way our vcXO signal and smooth it out such that it just is really really nice looks nice on a on a spectrum analyzer um, so using this using this little fifteen dollar device can provide some with an appropriate controller such as we're talking about with the GPS display terminal can provide a, a really interesting capability for the bench, for the radios, for an integral, being an integral part of the radios for calibration um, and, and such. But, Mike, what's been your findings in, in testing with uh, the GDT? And uh, I think you've made some observations along the way as far as, like, you know, how this thing can be used.
2: Well, let me talk first about uh, just the Neo 7 10 megahertz output a little bit. It, it is really a bad-looking signal, but it's got a lot of good quality. So just what comes out of the Neo7, if you set it to uh, 10 megahertz, uh, it puts out every second 10 million uh, uh, pulses that are kind of like square waves. They're uh, not all the same time, it turns out, in trying to divide that 48 megahertz down to 10 megahertz. But I've got an old Heathkit uh, frequency counter that has the ability to use an external time base and it just uh, has dividers in there to divide it by uh, uh, 10 million to get its one second and that crummy signal works very nicely uh, as a time base uh, without any other circuitry. So I'm very happy with that uh, particular application. The uh, GDT we have, Yeah, you know, I, I kind of was scratching my head for a while, why do I want a GDT? Because uh, U-Blocks does have their U-Center program that uh, controls every aspect of the uh, GPS receiver and displays everything, but it needs a PC to be running. And it's kind of tricky, complicated to understand where you go in the many screens, to do things. So one of the beautiful parts about the GDT is it's portable and it's also simple to use. So uh, it, it's a great tool to have to go along with the uh, GPS receiver and the uh, certainly the signal generator is a uh, great uh, function that's built into it. And that Maidenhead uh, output that we have on the time screen, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, and uh, people that are on just HF probably aren't so much, VHF people use it to indicate their location, uh, particularly if they're out in the contest in uh, uh, one of the little blocks uh, and uh, having the gdt with where you are right now in the maidenhead system is a really neat thing to have so uh does that uh, kind of answer your question a little bit george go ahead
0: yeah it does mike thank you and uh I, I think uh i i enjoy working with you a lot because you always bring different aspects of uh um to to the surface uh, sometimes a designer goes into a project with preconceived ideas of value, of of uh, benefit and usage. You've challenged us a couple of times in in a very significant way that uh, I think that we've worked through an understanding in both directions. You you've kind of seen the points that we we had originally and and we've learned from your uh usage um and testing of the of the of the gdt along the way too and ultimately this is a nifty thing i think you made a comment too you know the 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 GPS display terminal is not just for GPS. Um, I'm not sure what you were after, but maybe that was one of the original intents that Dave and I had when we started off with this thing being a NAT, a network analyzing terminal. Basically that any input data stream, any serial port feeding this thing can process the data that's coming in in a graphical manner or not, maybe just numeric manner, display the results. Is that what you were getting at?
2: Well, I was kind of just looking at the GDT itself. Would I want to buy one of those things? Uh, and the answer might be, yeah, it's really cute, but I can't justify it. But the same box, just loading a different application in, which kind of you do off of the SD memory card, uh, becomes the NAT. And I think there may be some other applications down the road that make this a multi-purpose device that, uh, yes, that does justify getting one.
0: Uh, I see what your your point was. Okay, very good. And we didn't mention it too much, but uh, um, see, you can see it on the last picture at the bottom of the page. What we did is we put a kind of like a typical simple scenario uh, of the Neo7 feeding the GDT, and that's about all that's required. You can extend that antenna on the left-hand side and put it onto a windowsill like Dave did or i I have a longer extension of the antenna feed line. Instead of being one inch, I have it be like uh, 20 feet uh, going up through the wall of my basement here to the outside of the house to get a good shot at the birds, as we say, and it works out really well. Um, but that's all you need. Is That's just, it's just a simple thing there. And uh, oh, what I was getting at in that picture, you can see there is a keyboard jack, or l- the label for it at any rate. Um, along the bottom edge of that display terminal uh, box, and it takes an input of an optional input of a keyboard, which could give you better, easier, faster um, control over the uh, settings that you're trying to set up during configuration or um, uh, normal usage of the product. So um, in addition to uh, the touch screen, you could use one of the micro or the PC, uh, the P, uh, PS2 connectors, you know, the ones with the round six pin connector uh, from the PCs of old. So we can get those on the, on the surplus market pretty, uh, pretty readily. Okay. Um, our time is just about up a uh, hard limit. We can go on for a long time and we, we definitely cut it here at, at the nine 30 mark, if not earlier, but I um, wanted to open it up for questions. We've been doing a lot of talking and uh, touching on a lot of different topics from GPS timing to the GDT and so on. So GPS uh, technology in general. Open it up for general questions. If anybody wants to raise a question we can drill into a little bit, uh, please go ahead now.
2: Well, George, I've got a question. When this uh, series of uh uh, Meeting started, it was done every week. How did you ever keep up that schedule? <laughs> I don't know. He didn't. He-
0: well, I think we did a pretty good job of it at first. I mean, there was a lot of good material, and I think the more we prepped for it, uh, the, the more in-depth the, uh, the prep became. And I think b- bottom line, Mike, was that uh, Joe and I wanted to – Joe, what do you think? Uh, we wanted to give more time in between the shows. Besides, there's us just – getting more time to prepare. We wanted to get more time for uh, guys and gals to, uh, to work at the projects that we talked about from one show to the next, give them a chance to really get into it a little bit, uh, whip up the circuit, think about it, try something out. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that and we wanted to put more meat on the bones. Um, when you only have a limited amount of time, you can only hit highlights. You don't have a chance to uh, to uh, provide more detail. Now, we don't always discuss all the detail. We try to uh, present the highlights, try to discuss some of the issues going on and uh, and discuss an ongoing project and some of the issues people have got. but. One of the things having a little more prep time allows us to do is to uh, get a wider variety of references and um, and some uh, pictures and uh, diagrams of what's going on, so we give a more rounded picture of what's happening rather than a quick hit every week. Yeah, Rick. Oh, Rick.
3: Uh, where do we? Speaking of previous programs, where do we sit on the SW thirty project?
0: Uh, good question. And it um, it is uh, coming along, I'm hoping, we are hoping that it would come along after the next episode. So we want to finish up the GPS uh, Disciplining Oscillator project, this one that we're speaking of here, and have that little board that slips into that aluminum enclosure. And then um, that will have given me enough time to be ordering the parts. The circuit boards are in hand, I'm looking at them right here on the bench. We have um, a surprise that I'm not going to disclose right now, but a surprise for the enclosure uh, for the SW30. Um, and uh, Joe and I are, are whipping up the, uh, the curriculum, if you will, brushing the dust off of the Elmer 101 series and taking select information from it and talking about it from week to week that we planned on uh building up section by section for, of the SW30 transceiver um, and then describing it as we as we build it up. So uh, putting that into a timetable, next month is November, which is what we're going to do, well, the final episode here for the GPS um, disciplining, uh, disciplined oscillator, the GPSDO, And that would be Christmas time. We'll kick it off, hopefully, with uh, the parts kit being able to be ordered and uh, the first episode uh, that month.
3: Great. have something to order as a Christmas gift.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, a little amplification, if I may. Uh, go, may I go, George? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, this, this kit is a historical kit, shall we say. It was first produced um, probably a decade ago. And um, I have a little, little experience with things that uh, you want to support for a decade. Um, when I was working in the um, military industrial complex, um, one, one of the logistics issues we had to deal with was um, lifetime support for products. Uh, we had to assure ourselves that um, we purchased enough materials that we could support a product for whatever the lifetime of the uh, expected lifetime of the, uh, the product was. Um, happens that way in the ham world too. And as things get uh, long in the tooth, as uh, we're discovering more and more, um, it gets more and more difficult to get the exact same parts that uh, you're able to when something was designed. So it takes a little more legwork to um, beat the bushes and uh, find where you can get enough parts to uh, produce a kit these days that, um, is, that was designed some length ago. So that that adds to the fun, shall we say.
0: Indeed. And this, of course, was a project from uh, K1SWL, Dave Benson. And uh, it was a kind of a community effort of the Elmer 101, um, putting together the course material that explains the operation of the SW-XX, SW30, SW20, and so on. So we want to be leveraging all of that and kind of resurface that again. So looking forward to to that happening. Good question. Thank you. Other uh, other questions? Yes, I have a quick question, George. Okay, Paul. Great. Go ahead.
4: Uh, I missed out the due, due to noise here. The blue jumper wire on the GPS board. What was that for, and does it, do we need to add that on?
0: Um, it is for. Dave was explaining that that's uh, was his pickoff point for the output of the time pulse. So the way that we control that board produces a signal um, output from it that's programmable from 1 hertz up to 10 megahertz. And that is the that pickoff point on, I don't know whether it's a capacitor or whatever, um, Dave brought over with that blue wire to an edge and connector connected. that he was able to connect to. Dave, go ahead.
4: Yeah, it's it's actually an LED up there. Normally that thing comes up uh out of one uh, one pulse per second and just below the the blue wires on a resistor which is in series with the LED right just below it. And I'm tied directly to the pin uh on the uh the receiver module and all that does is bring it out to you. If you notice there's there's only four connections at that end of the uh, receiver board, but I've got a six pin connector on there. I just drilled a couple holes uh out beyond the four four that were there and then uh Put this, this guy in here, the connector in, and then that wire goes through that hole and just attaches to the, to the end pin there. Uh, I also wanted to mention, uh, you know, Mike mentioned the, the ratty signal coming out of there. Well, that signal is coming right off the, the, the receiver module, and uh, if you're going to use it for anything at all, you probably want to put some kind of a buffer amplifier or something in there.
0: All righty. Other questions, please. Okay. Nothing heard. Uh, Joe, do you want to take us home?
4: Indeed,
1: if I can find a push the talk switch. Just making notes here, things I want to follow up on. Well, this has been uh, another uh, long hour session, very good session. Uh, in the continuing saga of um, GPS disciplined oscillators, we discussed a number of things tonight, uh, starting off with um, the original rationale for. Um, Having a um, GPS discipline oscillator is a uh, good uh, frequency source in the in the Ham Shack. We talked about uh, some of the uh, adventures that we've gone through in uh, uh, providing the um, the temperature controlled uh, variable crystal oscillator and um, adapting a um, an existing uh, design from uh, from Hans GP uh, G0 UPL. To act as a temperature controller for this, um, and some of the uh, the growing pains in, in doing that integration. Um, in addition, we provided some uh, background info on the GPS system itself, um, having to do with uh, with the the actual architecture of it um, in uh, satellite constellations. Talked about uh, alternate uh, satellite constellations from uh, from Russia, the uh, GLONASS system, and the European system, uh, Galileo, as being uh, a parallel track for uh, um, global positioning, um, um, navigation, and um, standards. Boy, this darn computer keeps coming up with... Uh, all sorts of uh, warnings and, and uh, nasty things here. Don't I love Windows? Anyway, uh, these are alternate systems. Uh, get a little background on um, what's involved in satellite constellations for providing accurate uh, location and uh, navigation systems, as well as uh, dissemination of timing. And uh, then uh, segue into uh, another application for uh, using uh, the uh, excellent U-blocks receivers, very inexpensive u receivers. That uh, are kind of the heart of the uh, GPS reception or uh, for the disciplining. Um, and um, as a side note, uh, discuss the um, integration of the GPS information with a uh, uh, network uh, analyzer terminal that uh, George and uh, Dave Collins came up with. Um, another application of that same terminal uh, to use as a uh, display terminal for the, all of the GPS data, as well as a, uh, an alternate signal source uh, derived from the uh, GPS information. Um, and um, in addition, we we gave a chance for people to ask for some clarifications which might not have been uh, apparent in some of the previous stuff we discussed because of the breadth of information. Uh, we were able to uh, provide a little more background information and drill down a bit on exactly what's going on, um, how these signals are used, and uh, what our end, uh, end result is. Next time, uh, if all, all goes well, we will uh, will show you a working uh, discipline oscillator, 73 to all, and. Uh, uh, good evening and 2CX out.